All right, this is lecture two in our journey through John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. Last week we introduced a little bit about Bunyan himself, a little bit of his biography, which he helpfully wrote down later in uh, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners, the work that he wrote. But we first meet our character fleeing from the city of destruction. And how did Christian become to be in this miserable, miserable condition? Do you remember this condition of being terrified? He read the book. So we come in, uh, the, the, there's a dream, and he pictures in this dream a man. And how is this man clothed? Anybody remember? He's in rags, and he has what on his back? A big burden. And he's in this town, City of Destruction. He has a wife and children. And he's reading this book and he becomes aware of his need. And he flees. He plugs his ears as he's running away from his wife and children. And he says, life, life, eternal life. And he runs. And he eventually meets two characters. Immediately after leaving the city. Named Pliable and Obstinate. And these two, we said, represent what? Do we recall? Two common oppositions to the gospel. One is obstinate, who is as stubborn as a mule. He says, this, this, this thing you've read in this book, this is stupid. Why are you doing this? Why would you, you had a good life in the city. You had a wife and kids. Why are you leaving that city? And then you also meet Pliable, who represents kind of a, a fickleness, a, a capriciousness. He's, he's willing to go wherever the wind blows, whatever, whatever new philosophy of the day. That's what he's going after. And Pliable says, well, I'll go with you. You're talking about heaven. Heaven sounds nice. I think I'll have that. And so they set off. Pliable and Christian, and they immediately meet The slough of despond, the the swamp, the bog, the marsh of despond. Pliable says, enough with this. I I don't want to put up with this. And he prances along. He doesn't get sunk down in the muck because he has no burden like Christian does. And so Pliable gets himself out. Says, I'm done with this. I don't want anything to do with this. He's like the seed planted on the stony path, we said, that shoots up. And it looks like it has life, but the first sign of trial, it withers away. It's a spurious conversion. And we said this slough represented how conviction for sin, which is necessary, is being pictured here by Bunyan to show how it can become problematic for uninstructed new believers. How we can become bound up in the muck and the mire of conviction of sin, and we can lose our way if we lose sight of the wicked gate, the the light to which we have been called. We also read how the lawgiver places stones so that a path of safety can be made way through. But eventually, we saw a Christian being plucked up by a character named Help, aptly named, And today we're going to move to the next character which Christian meets. His name is Mr. Worldly Wise Man. The text says, Christian endeavored to struggle to that side of the slough that was further to his own house and next to the wicked gate. He faces another trial, far worse than mere Slough. But Christian here, we need to remark, is in a vulnerable position. Young believers are vulnerable. Why is he so vulnerable? Well, he's walking alone. Help has plucked him up and put him on his way, but he's walking alone. It says solitary by himself. He doesn't have the evangelist by his side. He doesn't have the counsel of another pilgrim on the journey. He's not yet made it to the things to come, which will show us what the church ought to be like. He doesn't even have pliable. 
We'll learn throughout this book of the value of walking together, not being a Lone Ranger Christian. But also it shows us that this meeting between Christian and the worldly wise man was, was unavoidable. They were, they were crossing the way of each other. They're passing in opposite direction. Christian facing towards eternal life. Mr. Worldly Wise Man is set towards the world. It says in the text that Mr. World, worldly Wise Man lived in the town of carnal policy, of fleshly rules. He was fleshly minded, which makes one hostile to God, Paul says in Romans 8. Mr. Worldly Wiseman had heard of the news of Christian's departure and he had set out to meet him. He questions Christian, trying to satisfy his curiosity. And as the conversation begins, Mr. Worldly Wiseman offers Christian counsel concerning his grief and his trouble and his burden. Christian had just come out of the slough. And though he was faithfully walking in the way that evangelists had told him to go, he fell into trouble. He was doing what he should have done, heading in the right direction, and trouble, misery, suffering comes. And so Mr. Worldly Wiseman says, why, why would you do that? I know of an easier way. I know of a better way. And so Christian is tempted Going through a slough makes one really ready to hear about an easy path. The advice of the world can be alluring. 1 Corinthians 1. Paul warns us against pursuing the wisdom of this world. For since in the wisdom of God, the, the world through wisdom did not know God. It pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who would believe. The world's wisdom tries to discount God, to redefine God, to soften God, or even deny God. Christian is told by Mr. Worldly Wise Man to beshrew, that means ask a curse against the evangelist. Even though evangelist is the one who has the message of life. God's wisdom and power are made known at the cross, 1 Corinthians 1, 24. And yet, this preaching of the cross by evangelists is condemned by Mr. Worldly Wise Man. But also, we need to note that the wisdom of this world cannot be trusted. Paul, again, in 1 Corinthians 2, Your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of of God, evangelists pointed Christian to seek Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. And that exclusiveness of Christ is pictured through the narrow gate, the wicked gate. There's only one way. And this message, this message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God unto salvation. God's word has the only answer for Christian to get rid of his burdens. Mr. Worldly Wise Man has nothing to offer. And the wisdom of this world is actually foolishness. Worldly Wise Man warns of dangers along the way, seeking to persuade Christian to come on. It's dangerous to go on this journey towards the celestial city. Why would you do that? Why don't you stay here Go back to the city of destruction or come with me to my town of carnal policy. It's really the opposite of what we're called by our Savior. If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. That's what Mr. Worldly Wise Men is saying. Save your life, Christian. Save your life and come with me this way. Don't lose your life that way. Proverbs 14, 12. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. It makes all the sense in the world. All the fleshly sense in the world. To follow after the world's wisdom. It's dangerous that way. 
It's hard. It's mucky. You just came out of the slough. You don't want to go back into that kind of stuff. Look at this big, wide road over here. Follow me. Final point worth noting in this opening conversation between Christian and worldly wise men. Worldly, after worldly wise man offers to Christian his counsel, Christian tells him that he will accept it if it be good. And worldly wise man thus begins with some good counsel. He says, I would advise thee then that you with all speed would get rid of your burden. For you'll never be settled in mind until then. Nor can you enjoy the benefits and the blessings that God has bestowed upon you until then. Now herein lies the danger. There's some truth into what he says. There's enough truth in worldly wisdom to bait the hook, but not enough to save. It's true that Christian will not have peace of mind so long as he has under the burden of this weight, this guilt of sin. And it's true that he should deal with it with all speed, Mr. Worldly Wise Man says. Christian is thus drawn in and in some senses disarmed by Mr. Worldly Wise Man's logic. And it's only after he's taken the bait that he leads him astray. And what does he do? He denounces God's servant, the evangelist. And then he denounces God's message that the evangelist had preached. So the lesson here is pretty clear. We must be cautious and watch for Satan's ploys. The devil is seldom outright with lies and heresy. There's often enough truth, enough logic sprinkled in to make it tempting. Paul warns that Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Galatians 1. The devil can give up his black and white appearance. Indeed, if he looked like the devil in the cartoons, all red, with horns and a pitchfork and a tail, how effective would his ruses be? Like, ah, there he is. Watch out for that guy. But if he looks angelic, if he speaks some truth, if he's clothed in light, if he looks like a Christian, if he talks like a Christian, if he even reasons with you from Scripture, we have to be on guard. Satan himself used what when he was talking with Jesus in the desert? Scripture. There's enough truth in Satan's lies to deceive. So by doing this, the devil has set a trap. And if we fail to see that it is a trap, it is error, clothed, adorned with truthful wrapping, then we will be like Christians, swayed by worldly wise men's counsel. The story continues. We see illustrated, really, Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. Christian is tempted to walk in the counsel of the wicked. Despite the warnings of trouble and the danger in the way and the scorn and the ridicule that worldly wise men heaped on evangelists, Christian is still persuaded to continue on to find deliverance. So worldly wise man raises another argument to win Christian to his side. And he asks him, where'd you get that burden? He said, well, I, I got that burden reading the book. He said, well, why would you keep reading the book? It's brought you nothing but misery. Why would you continue to read this book that brings you conviction, brings you weight? Worldly wise man denounces the Bible. He condemns it on, on, on three grounds. At first, he, he says the Word of God is weak. 
To all the world, religion is weakness. It's a fairy tale for the weak-minded. It was true back then, it's still true today. We should evolve past this. We should rise above this. Weakness, religion is. Suitable perhaps for children or for women, but not for manliness. Men are supposed to be strong, be in control, not admitting that they are helpless. Under the weight of a burden they can't carry. It's kind of the picture of, you know, John Wayne or Clint Eastwood. I don't need anybody's help. I'm a man's man. I don't need this religion stuff. So in the eyes of the world, a Christian is a failure. But secondly, worldly wise man posits that the Bible, reading this word, is distracting. He says, Christian, you should be out there making a name for yourself. You could be seeking pleasure and wealth, enjoying yourself, pursuing fame. Why are you wasting your time and your energy on this silly journey? And it makes sense. It makes sense in a fleshly way. Worldly wise man, dressed up nicely, not carrying a burden. Christian, dressed in rags, carrying a burden. Covered in the muck from the slough he just got out of with a long way to go and who knows what other dangers are that way for simply a promise that some guy had told him about. Worldly wise man continues and he insinuates that following the way of the Bible is pointless. He refers to Christian and his pursuit of trying to find peace as desperate. See, the world would have us only to live by sight. It makes no sense to the world for us to live by faith. To put our hope in that which we cannot see. To put our trust in that which we cannot touch. Why would we do that? So again, we can see... Satan's ploys in and through Mr. Worldly Wise Man. Nothing in here is new. There's nothing new under the sun. Satan's words to Eve in the garden. Has has God really said? The attack continues. The words of Scripture are mythological. They are inaccurate. They're irrelevant. They're outdated. But to the Christian, the Bible is a precious book. Bunyan writes in his autobiography, The Bible was precious to me in those days, the days of his, right after his conversion. And now, methought, I began to look into the Bible with new eyes, and I read it as I have never read it before, especially the epistles of Paul were sweet and pleasant to me. And indeed, I was never out of the Bible, either by reading it or meditating upon it, still crying out to God that I might know truth in the way to heaven and to glory. You see in Bunyan's own past the picture of Pilgrim, devoted to the Word, crying out, That he might have life, life, eternal life. Reminds me of Jesus, who alone has the words of eternal life. Paul tells us that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And so we have to hold fast to that word, even when the world gives us its scorn. And so though Christian has hardly begun his journey... He's already weary for battling this slough. And he's inexperienced in his pilgrimage. He's carrying this burden. And so in his desperation, he's ripe for being tempted, for being tricked, beguiled by Mr. Worldly Wise Man who offers him a shortcut, an easier way from all these battles with sin and the burden. And what is... This easier way, well, he offers them refuge in a village called the village of morality. This village of morality represents the great 
host of people in this world who seek to avoid the appearance of evil and and practice good apart from any genuine fear of the Lord, without any faith. They hope that being good people and doing good things will keep them out of God's judgment in the end. They keep the law outwardly in the eyes of men. They're like the rich young ruler who said to Jesus, Teacher, all of these things I've done since I was a youth. The world's advice to Christian is essentially, Be a good person, you'll be okay. It's a very real sense. There's a good comparison between where we live, our culture in the South. And the village of morality. Everybody down here is kind of a Christian. I've never murdered anybody. Not as bad as that guy over there. And so the citizens of the village of morality, they look to Mr. Legality to ease their consciences. They, They cling to these outward works of the law. Mr. Legality. Works of righteousness. To continually outweigh the bad. And if legality is not at home, that is, if you can't meet up to the legalistic standard of outward works, there's also Mr. Civility. So if you can't really meet the law, then just trying to get along with other people and act decently be benevolent towards your fellow man all do all of that you'll be fine you say that your works of the law will make you righteous and well sometimes you don't actually measure up to the standard but as long as you're polite and nice easy to get along with it'll be okay bunyan describes his own stay in this village again in his autobiography he says Wherefore I fell to some outward reformation. It was polishing the cup on the outside. Outward reformation both in my words and my life. And I did set the commandments before me as my path to heaven. These commandments I also did strive to keep. And as I thought, I did keep them pretty well sometimes. And I should then have some comfort. Yet, now and then... Should I break one? And so afflict my conscience. But then I would repent. I would say I was sorry. I'd promise to God I would do better next time. And there for help again. I thought I was pleased with God. As well as any man in England. So Bunyan himself was a resident. Former resident. Of this village of morality. This town however. I think Bunyan would have us to see, is actually in greater danger than the city of destruction. In destruction, the danger was clear. It was manifest to their eyes. The wickedness, the enmity of God was clear. But in this city, this village of morality, burdens are discarded. Guilt is smothered out with Righteous living and good deeds. The citizens in the village of morality think everything is well. Peace, peace, they say, when there's actually no peace. In one real sense, it's easier to preach the gospel in the muck and the mire of the worst immoral town you can think of than it is in Montgomery, Alabama. If I go to Bourbon Street in New Orleans, and I read the gospel, I don't have to argue with people about their sinfulness. They know that they are sinners, and they revel in it often. Here you have to unsave people with the law to get them to actually see their need of the gospel. Because they are card-carrying members of the village of morality. And so Bunyan would have us to get rid of the hellish lie that tells us man can solve his own problems 
He can remove his own guilt, his own burden, simply by doing better, cleaning himself up. Only the cross, the blood of Christ, can bring atonement for sin. Christian will soon learn that to stray from the way of the cross is perilous. Moving on. Evangelist comes back. He he comforts Christian. He points him back to the wicked gate. Over that gate are the words of Matthew 7. Ask and it will be given to you. Knock and it will be opened to you. And he meets goodwill at the gate. Who helps Christian. He snatches Christian and pulls him through the gate. We'll come back to that moment in future lectures. But goodwill then directs Christian towards the house of a man named Interpreter. Mr. Interpreter, what is Bunyan doing here? Well, in one sense... Every person is an interpreter of God's Word. But Bunyan here, in Mr. Interpreter and in the images found in Interpreter's House, is highlighting how the church, and in particular the ministers of God's church, have a duty to instruct the recently converted. Those that have recently made it through the wicket gate have need of instruction. It's the duty of the church and the teachers within the church to help to feed milk to the newborn baby. And so Mr. Interpreter takes Christian on a tour. He lights a candle and they go through seven different rooms in his house. I really love this section of this book. So we're going to look at each of these rooms. The first room has a portrait on the wall. The text says, Christian saw the picture of a very grave person, very serious, hung up against the wall. It had his eyes lifted up to the heaven, the best of books in his hand, The law of truth written upon his lips and the world was behind his back and it stood as if he pleaded with men and a crown of gold did hang over its head. What is is Bunyan picturing here? I'm sorry? That's, That's true. I think... Not merely any godly guide, though it's certainly true of a godly guide. I think he's speaking of a minister of the gospel. I think he's painting a picture. He probably has in mind, Bunyan, his own pastor of their small congregation. John Gifford was his name. He's got the best of books in his hand. His eyes pointed to heaven. The world behind him. And the way of truth coming out of his mouth. And there's a grave appearance. He was serious. The work of a pastor, of a minister, is a sobering work, ought to be a sobering work. It's not that there's never any joy, certainly not. But how different is Bunyan's portrait of a minister? If if this were written today, what would Bunyan's picture of a minister look like? A big, a big, warm smile. Right? It would be an interesting exercise to think through. How would evangelicalism in America today paint the archetype of a minister of God? It's worth thinking about. How does it conform to Bunyan's picture or to Scripture's picture? Next, Bunyan is taken by interpreter, or a Christian is taken by interpreter to the second room where we see sweeping happening. 
Then he took him by the hand and led him into a very large parlor that was full of dust because it because never swept. And after a little while, interpreter called for the man to sweep. And he began to sweep, and the dust began so abundantly to fly about that Christian almost was choked. Then the interpreter said to the damsel who stood by, Bring some water and sprinkle it in the room. And when she had done, it was swept and, and, and cleaned with pleasure. And so we have someone stirring up the room with all this choking dust and dirt. Only until water is applied can the room actually be clean. And Christian said, what does this mean? Interpreter answered, this parlor is the heart of a man that was never sanctified by the sweet grace of the gospel. The dust is original sin, is inward corruptions that have defiled the whole man. And when they first began to sweep, it's the law. What does the law do in the heart without the spirit? It stirs up, it provokes more sin, it chokes those around it. But she that brought the water and did sprinkle it, that is the gospel. As you saw, when they first began to sweep, the dust did fly about. And the room could not be cleaned. You were almost choked with it. This is to show that the law, instead of cleaning the heart, like the people in the village of morality say, the law from sin doth revive and put strength and increase sin in the soul. It provokes even doth discover and forbid sin, but it give not the power to subdue it. That's what the law can do. It shows you sin, it provokes to more sin, but it gives you no power to kill it. Again, that same damsel, when she sprinkled the room with water, this is to show thee that when the gospel comes in, the sweet and precious influences of thereof to the heart, sin is vanquished. It is subdued. The soul can then be made clean through faith and consequently fit for the King of glory to inhabit it. It's the opposite of the village of morality, which says just clean up the outside. Don't worry about the inside. Just do a little bit more good than evil and God will let you in at the end. But the room must be clean. And the law can never clean the law only reveals. The gospel must be used to sprinkle clean. Third, interpreter takes Christian to a room with two children sitting in chairs. One was named Passion and the other was Patience. Passion was discontent. Was unhappy. But Patience is pictured being very quiet. Passion represents the people of this world who want everything now. Boy, if there were a picture of our current cultural moment of instant gratification. I don't have to wait even for the newspaper tomorrow. I can be live streaming whatever newsworthy thing is happening in this moment. I can immediately talk to anyone on the planet. Previous generations could never have even conceived of such a thing. And what does it do to the human soul to be instantly gratified in every area of your life and then to take a journey which requires immense patience? We would be fools to think that like passion, sitting discontented in the chair... That we're unaffected by all these other things in our life. Most everything of good and lasting value in this life takes great patience and effort. Like building a house. Like growing a garden. It takes time. There's no reason... I mean, it's, it's, it's very clear why Jesus describes... So many agricultural things. It's not merely that's what a lot of times they did in the ancient Near East. 
The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. It starts off with nothing, but it takes time to grow. Passion represents the people of this world who want everything now, and to them, waiting makes no sense. I don't want to suffer. I want immediate deliverance. And if Jesus doesn't give it to me, then I don't want anything to do with Him. Passion is contrasted with patience, who represents the people, not of this world, the people of the world to come, who are contented to wait for their inheritance. The world is like Esau, who in a moment of hunger gives away his birthright for a bowl of soup. The people of God are not so. They know that their inheritance is waiting for them, imperishable, undefiled, but still waiting to come. Not yet here. Fourth, Christian is taken to see another scene where there's a fireplace. Christian is led by the hand into a place where there's a fire burning against the wall of the fireplace. And there's someone standing by the fire, casting water into the fire, trying to put it out. And yet the fire burned hotter and hotter. What is going on here? Well, the interpreter answers. He says, this fire is the work of grace that is produced in the heart. And he that casts water upon it to extinguish it is the devil. But in that, you see the fire, notwithstanding, burn higher and hotter. And I'll show you the reason for that. And he walks him around to the other side of the fireplace wherein he sees a man with a, a vessel of oil continually putting oil secretly into the fire. It's being stoked and fueled from a hidden location, from behind the fire. And the interpreter said, This is Christ, who continually, with the oil of His grace, maintains the work that has already begun in the heart by the means of which, notwithstanding anything that the devil can do, the souls of his people prove gracious still. And in that, you saw that the man stood behind the wall to maintain the fire. This is to teach you that it is hard for the tempted to see how this work of grace is maintained in the soul. The man with the oil is not in the room with the fire. It's hard to see him. Those that are under the, the devil's temptings have the water put upon them to try and quench their spirit. They can be tempted to disbelieve that there is a man with oil behind them. That there is grace sufficient to persevere every trial found in Christ. A young Christian needs to know that there will be persecution and trial. Water will be thrown on your zeal. Satan and the world love to extinguish zeal and love for Christ, but the Holy Spirit will continue to fuel and to sustain with the oil of His work. Remember, these are all pictures of what Bunyan believes an early Christian needs to know. Related to that, we see a fifth picture. Christian is taken to see a castle, a stately palace. The text says, a valiant Man, a brave man, comes out and he's pictured in armor. Let's see. He saw the man draw his sword, put a helmet on his head, rush towards the door upon the armed men who were trying to take the castle. 
And he laid upon them with deadly force. But the man, not at all discouraged, fell to cutting and hacking most fiercely. And so after he had received and had been given many wounds, those that attempted to keep him out, he cut his way through them all and pressed forward towards the palace, at which there was a pleasant voice from those that were within, saying, Come in, come in. Eternal glory thou shalt win. This man is given many wounds. He has taken many wounds. But he eventually prevails. And what Bunyan is picturing here is a typical 17th century understanding of what the Christian life looks like. It's a battle. Young Christians especially need to know that this is a fight. There's a battle that is being waged. Young believers need to be taught with sobriety what this looks like. This is typical of the Puritan era. Think of a a Puritan named William Gurnall, who wrote a Christian in complete armor. 900 page exposition of Ephesians 6 about spiritual warfare. How does this compare to modern conceptions of the Christian life? Where you're promised to live your best life now. Young Christians, poorly instructed, will face warfare. And if they're taught that that warfare is not usual, is not the norm... They're going to doubt their own salvation. If Christians are supposed to be happy all the time and I'm not happy, I must not be a Christian. It's it's easy logic to follow. This doesn't feel like my best life now. This feels like a fight. And this fight has only started since I started to follow this book. So I'm going to stop following the book. Christian life is a battle. Next, Christian is taken to a very dark room where he sees a man in an iron cage. That's number six. I'm going to come back to that man. He's then taken to the seventh room where he shows a man rising from his bed trembling. He's shaking. He had had just woken up startled because he had a dream that he had been left behind. I'm not talking about the book or the movie. Bunyan is picturing for us the day of judgment. The day of reckoning. Faithful discipleship of new believers... Faithful evangelism as well will include some teaching that there is a day of judgment that is to come. Everyone will give account for the deeds done in the body. This man was left behind. He was not taken into the kingdom of God. He was not vindicated. And so Bunyan is again here picturing... There are two paths, and only two. Biblical teaching, biblical evangelism will lead to the inevitable conclusion that you have option A and option B. There is no C. One leads to the celestial city. And joy and peace, communion... With the great lawgiver and righteous one. The ruler of the realm. The other path leads to judgment. But back to the sixth image. Of a man in an iron cage. We are given a terrifying picture. I wonder if we today would add such a picture. 
to describing the spiritual journey. He says, uh, Christian asks him, what, what are you? This man bound in a cage in a dark room. And the man says, I was once a fair and flourishing professor. Not a, not a teacher, but a professor of faith. I was once one who professed faith, both in my own eyes and in the eyes of others. Everybody thought I was a Christian. I thought I was a Christian. I was once, I thought, headed towards the celestial city and had even joy at the thoughts that I would get there one day. So Christian says, well, what are you now? You used to be like me. How did you get up in this cage? The man says, I'm now a man of despair and am shut up in it as in this iron cage. I cannot get out. Oh no, I cannot get out. Well, well, how did you come to be in this condition, Christian asked. He says, well, I left off to watch. I stopped watching. I stopped being sober, sober-minded. I laid the reins of control like horses' reins upon the neck of my own lusts. He said, I let my lusts run wild. I sinned against the light of the Word and against the goodness of God. I have grieved the Holy Spirit and He is gone. I have tempted the devil and He has come into me. I have provoked God to anger and He has left me. I have so hardened my heart that I cannot repent. There's not a lot of stuff like that at Lifeway these days, is there? Christian said to the interpreter, is there no hope for such a man? Ask him, said the interpreter. And Christian said, is there no hope but for you to be kept in this iron cage of despair? And the man said, no, none at all. Why? The Son of the Blessed is very pitiful. There's, there's great mercy in the Son. The man says, I have crucified him to myself afresh. That's Hebrew 6 language. I have despised his person. I have despised his righteousness. I have counted his blood as an unholy thing. I have done despite, desperate to the spirit of grace. Therefore, I have shut myself out of all of his promises. And there now remains to me nothing but threatenings, dreadful threatenings, fearful threatenings of certain judgment, fiery indignation, which shall devour me as an adversary. Christian said, for, for what did you bring yourself into this condition? Why did you do this? What were, you, what were you seeking? The man said, for lusts, pleasures, and the profits of this world, in the enjoyment of which I did then promise myself much delight. But now every one of those things also bite me and gnaw at me like a burning worm. But can't you now turn and repent? The man said, God hath denied me repentance. His word gives me no encouragement to believe. Yea, himself, he himself has shut me up in this iron cage. Nor can all the men of this world let me out. Oh, eternity, eternity. How shall I grapple with the misery that I must meet in eternity? What's Bunyan picturing here? What scripture is he thinking of? Thinking of things like Hebrews 6 and Hebrews 10. Hebrews 6 says, For it's impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted of the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted of the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, it's impossible to restore them again to repentance. Since they are crucifying again the Son of God, and to their own harm, holding him up to contempt. That's the quotes that Bunyan is weaving in through this passage. The picture of a man who has left off his perseverance and chosen instead to embrace the world with all of its pleasures and lusts. He sinned against the Holy Spirit. In Bunyan's day, 17th century, 
Those verses of Hebrews 6 were taken very seriously, but not often today. How often do we hear sermons about the unforgivable sin? Not often. In Bunyan's day, the unforgivable sin was a deliberate and willful act of apostasy. Turning away from the gospel. Rejecting the truth of God. Rejecting the grace of God in favor of worldly pleasures and lusts. And so Bunyan tells us that believers, especially new believers, need to know. Need to see that rejected grace. That turning willfully and embracing the lusts of this world. Will eventually allow those lusts. And those passions to become the bars of your own imprisonment. We've seen this. You've seen this, I'm sure. Gratifying the deeds of the flesh will become an iron cage from which no man can liberate. So we need to be sober-minded, watchful, fearful, Let those who think they stand take heed lest they fall, Paul says. We cannot play with sin. Think it is some light and trivial thing. Lest it become the bars of our own imprisonment. Bunyan's also stressing the need for perseverance. Those who persevere to the end will be saved. We can take confidence in that. We, we remember the picture of the man with the oil behind the fire, stoking and stoking. We have in these two pictures of grace-fueled stoking and the man who gave the reins of his lust. Kind of two pictures saying from Bunyan, work out your salvation in fear and trembling. Holy activity and business for the Lord. These are proper. And fearfulness of sin is a good thing. Because it keeps believers in the right frame of mind. Sometimes young believers can be overly confident. They can think in their newfound zeal that sin is no longer a snare. And they can wander where they don't need to go. Bunyan is confronting the modern idea of easy believism. It's easy to be a Christian. No, Christian is a, Christianity is a fight. Bunyan, I think, is a helpful corrective. We are to be properly fearful of sin and apostasy, but not hopeless. Circumspect in our battle... Remembering the valiant man with his sword and his helmet, but not terrified. Controlled rather by a proper fear of the Lord, rather than cavalier with our faith. I'm going to stop there. We'll resume back next week. Let me pray for us.